I really meant to finish the chapter last week, but I only covered three verses. And Tina was so encouraging. She says, Pastor Mike, if the Spirit leads you to only cover three verses, then three verses is good, or however, whatever she said. And I was like, because oh. I feel guilty at times. And, you know, I do. I feel bad. She's like, oh, I try so hard. And, but, but it is what it is. And it's also too good to be flexible. Pastor Chuck used to say all the time, blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. And I think sometimes we as Christians get pretty rigid not me not maybe not me because i don't have any problems with that with being rigid i am even though it might not look like it i'm spiritual gumby you know i can pretty much go with whatever the flow is but uh, lord willing we're going to take a look at just the closing verses of this chapter and then we will have communion together so picking up in verse 22 is where we left off let's open in a word of prayer lord we're grateful for this time grateful lord for your word for this epistle Lord, as our hearts have been prepared through worship, Lord, just deposit, Lord, the truths that you desire into our hearts through your word and through the working of your Holy Spirit. We just thank you, Lord. I just thank you, Lord, for our fellowship. What a blessing it is to have brothers and sisters in Christ that love you. And, and Lord, just thank you for the love that is in this church. I pray, God, that you'd continue to build this church and, and to edify it and and strengthen it in your love. And I just ask you these things in your mighty name. Amen. You almost feel like I should backtrack a few verses, but as I've been going through these closing section of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, they have been just little one-liners, little exhortations that Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And he begins with a number of them as well. And I'll just mention verse 16. He says to rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Verse 22, which is where we're picking up, he says, abstain from all appearance of evil. That's how the old King James translates it. In some of the newer translations, or particularly the NIV, it says, avoid every kind of evil. I like the old King James because even though it's true that we need to avoid evil, I mean, our tendency is, okay, where's the evil? Can I get as close to the evil? You know, again, too, this is illustrated in the book of Genesis where God tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the very next scene in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 3, the very first place you see Adam and Eve after they've been created is there. And Satan then begins the temptation. I think in avoiding it, we end up cutting off that opportunity maybe for temptation. But as I said, I like the old King James because it, I think it has another facet to it. And I'll explain, too, the reason why probably the old King James translates it this way is abstain from all appearance of evil, is that the word that's used there for appearance, it's only used, I think, five times in the New Testament. And the root, though, is used several hundred times in the Scripture. And, and really, uh, getting back to the, the, the Greek word for appearance in, 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 the, in the old King James, this is how it's defined, the external or outward appearance, the form, figure, shape, or kind. 
and how it's used. And a lot of times it's great to be able to go to scripture and see how that word is used to give us an understanding of what is meant here. And this particular word is only used four other times, but like I said, its root is used several hundred times. But I want to go to the, the, the couple of times that it's used in the scripture. And again, too, you get a, a much better understanding that it is really, I think, more accurately translated as appearance. And then we'll kind of build on that platform a little. But in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, it says that the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him, speaking of Jesus, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And that bodily shape is that Greek word. Verse, in Luke chapter 9, verse 29, as Jesus is on the mount with his disciples and is transfigured, it says that as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. And his raiment or his clothing was white and glistening. Again, too, it's what you see. John chapter 5, verse 37. It says, Jesus says, And the Father himself which has sent me has borne, hath borne witness of me, and you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, his appearance. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says that we walk by faith, not by sight. So let's just consider this for a minute. Abstain from the appearance of evil. See, it's not just avoiding the temptations or the evil. But I think, too, we as believers, what happens is people look at our lives and they draw conclusions based upon what they see. True? What, right or wrong? And again, too, sometimes their conclusions are wrong. But the problem is, is they're, they're going to draw conclusions. When my wife and I first moved back here to Minnesota. We were living in West St. Paul. And long story short, I happened to be going into the Best Buy that was on Robert Street in West St. Paul. And uh, I was buying some cassette tapes for the church because we used to record our message on these magnetic tapes called cassettes. <laughs> and uh, I would pick up a good high quality. I saw, you know, uh, they needed help. They, they're looking for hire people. So I got a job at Best Buy there. And at first I worked in sales, but then I worked mostly in electronics and helping customer service. And, and if you've got problems with something, please don't come and see me with it because Lynn will tell you all the junk that we've got that I've never fixed. But that's my background. But here's the thing. As I started working there as a believer, and at the time I was 28 years old, I kind of stood out because we as believers should stand out in this world that we're living in. We should be light. We should be salt. And I think a number of things that my co-workers would notice is I would bring my Bible with me to work and I would read it during my break or at lunchtime. And again, too, as opportunities came up, I would share the gospel with people. Sometimes, too, you know, they knew, too, that I was, you know, pastoring, a, getting started a Bible study in our house and pastoring a church and, and all these different things. And so the other thing that would happen, this happened when I was in the Marine Corps too, when they find out you're a Christian, they just began to ask you all these questions. You know, and they began to kind of try to, you know, mock your faith or beliefs. But one of the things that would happen though too is, I love the passage in the scripture that says, when a man's ways are pleasing unto the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And one of the things that began to happen is I developed a love for the people that I was working with and developed friendships with them. And even though they were non-believers, my desire is that they would see 
that difference that Jesus has made in my life. And what began to happen then, too, is after work, especially if you worked the closing shift, the store would close typically on a, at 9 o'clock. I think on a Saturday it was open till 10. During the Christmas you know, shopping time, it would be open whatever, you know, the extended hours. But a lot of times after we were done with our closing duties, there was a, a ground round restaurant slash bar that's just, a, you know, I think one or two driveways away on Robert Street. It's not there anymore. It's an Applebee's now. I like the ground. I used to, we actually, Lynn spoke uh, yesterday at, or two days ago at Calvary Chapel up in Grand Rapids, and, and we ate at Ground Round that, that night. Um, they don't have them here in the cities anymore, I don't think. But they used to provide these free peanuts, and you'd eat, and the shells would be on the floor, and it was kind of cool. And I think at night, you know, ravening dogs would come through and clean things up off the floor. I don't know, because the floors were pretty clean the next day. But my buddies from Best Buy, a lot of times they would stop at uh, Ground Round afterwards to have a beer or two, have a drink. And they began to ask me if I wanted to go. And bless you. And I struggled with it. Because on the one hand, appearance, avoiding the appearance of evil. I would hate for somebody, maybe even in our church at the time, this is a small church, but I would have hated for somebody to come into Ground Round and maybe they're going to go to the restaurant section of it and have something to eat and they see Pastor Mike sitting on a bar stool with a bunch of guys having a drink. Now, here's the thing. I wouldn't drink and that's the thing I would say to them. I said, I, I don't drink. Well, just come and have a Coke with us. Just sit there with us. And, and I had to try to help them understand. And again, too, for the non-believer, they don't understand. They don't understand, at times, us as Christians. And I think it's helpful to try to explain it to them. Because I think sometimes they think we're just legalistic. Or you're just being too tightly wound. And at the same time, I had to begin to balance it with what else I saw in the Scripture. Because Jesus was accused of eating with drunkards and, and with harlots and with the, the tax collectors. And again, too, the, the Pharisees who, you know, their whole thing was what people saw, how righteous they were. And, and accusing then Jesus and his disciples of eating and being and hanging out with sinners. And can people draw conclusions? The Pharisees did. But the interesting thing in the scripture says, and this is the thing I found too, as a believer, to be careful to draw conclusions before you know the whole story. And that's what the book of Proverbs says. It says, you know, that if you're drawing conclusions before you've heard the whole thing, then you're gonna, you're, uh, eventually you're going to draw the wrong conclusion. And, and I know, you know, I began to tell them that. And, and again, too, they, they, for whatever reason, liked my company. They wanted me to hang out with them. They wanted me to be included so I wrestled with that, and at first I didn't, but then, and then I began to think, well, you know what, I think I can do this, and if the issue ever comes up, that I can explain to someone, this is why I'm doing it. And on top of that, I'm not drinking any alcohol, I'm having a Coke. You know, it's funny, too, the church has gone, swung the opposite end of the pendulum, because on the one hand, the church used to be, you know what, Christians shouldn't drink. And it was just this blanket statement, Christians shouldn't drink. But now the pendulum has swung all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And now, you know, there's so many churches that basically say, well, you have a liberty to, and you can, and you have an opportunity to, to engage and to, you know, draw people into the kingdom. 
The problem is, is that they don't see the power that God has to be able to deliver from certain areas of sin. And for some people, and, and I have to tell you, on the subject of alcohol, my dad was an alcoholic. And I've got aunts and uncles that were alcoholics. And I know the bondage that alcohol can be to someone. And the last thing that I would want to do as a believer is somehow make somebody feel like, well, Pastor Mike can do it. Pastor Mike has a beer or a glass of wine or whatever. I must be able to do it. And then they can't control the bondage that that might bring them into, especially if they're trying to deal with that. And, and so when the scripture says to abstain from all appearance of evil, again, too, it's what people see and then it's the conclusions they draw and maybe, too, even the liberties that they feel like that they can exercise. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about our liberties. And he says, our liberties should never be used as an occasion to stumble a brother or sister. If you have a liberty to have a glass of wine or a bottle of beer or whatever, then that's fine. The scripture is very clear about getting drunk. I mean, that's where the line is crossed. But if you have a liberty to do that, and I'd say a liberty, it's not a right. If you have a liberty to do something, then exercise those liberties with caution and discernment because, again, the potential for stumbling, whether it's a believer or a non-believer. You know, I'll give you another example, too, of, of, of uh, maybe a, a way in which this can be applied, abstaining from the appearance of evil. Maybe the movies that we see. I can't tell you how many times we've come out of the movie theater. You think nobody's ever going to see you, know, you coming out of a movie theater. There's so many people there. And it's funny, we've got dear friends. And it seems like, it seems like the last couple of years we don't go to the movies all that much as we used to. We used to go to the movies quite a bit. And we long ago, long ago, before we moved to Minnesota, we purposed in our heart. And I'm just telling you, this is the standard we've put for ourselves. I'm not trying to impose any type of righteous standard upon anybody. But the standard that we put upon ourselves is we're not going to see R-rated movies. We don't want, again, to... First of all, we don't want to be stumbled, but we also don't want to potentially stumble someone else when they hear that we've seen an R-rated movie. I mean, there's a reason why the movie industry rates them R. You know, it's like, okay, if the movie industry thinks that this is not suitable for small children, what makes me think that as an adult it's suitable for me? And again, you know, are we hard and fast on that? We saw The Passion of the Christ is rated R for the violence. Have we ever seen R-rated movies? Yes, we have, but there is an exercise of discernment as to the content and the things that are there. Sometimes people, I mean, again, too, movies that are now rated PG-13 are as bad as R-rated movies were in the 70s and 80s. So I think it's good also, too, to do some research. But here's the thing, the, uh, the appearance of evil. You come out of a movie theater, and you might think nobody sees, nobody knows. But it almost, for, at least maybe for me, and maybe because I'm a public figure, <laughs> no. It's just amazing how many times we run into somebody and the question will be, what movie did you see? And we, we, we okay, well, we, yeah, we saw, I mean, if I had to hem and haw and say, well, we saw this, or even be embarrassed or even feel a sense of conviction, then there's something wrong. I'll give you another example. When I was working at Best Buy, a lot of times at lunchtime, somebody would run to a place and get burgers or sandwiches for everybody. 
and you know they would take orders and after I got out of sales I was working customer service as a tech and at the time you know most of the girls that I worked with because at the time it was mostly girls that worked at the service counter and customer service at Best Buy you know they're teenage girls and at the time I was probably about 29 30 years old and you know I had the cars and so I was going to take the order, and then I remember on one particular occasion, this one girl, her name was Stacy, she says, well, you know, can I come with you? I'll help you with the order. And I said, well, you know, Stacy, I don't know, I feel really comfortable with that. Well, why? And I had explained to her, well, because you're a single woman, I'm, I'm a married guy, I would hate for somebody to see me driving down Robert Street, somebody I know, and then, hey, who's that girl you're riding in the car with? Drawing conclusions. Now, one of the things I will say, uh, you know, I, I, from time to time I get together with a cousin. I, I have a lot of cousins, I've told you this, and it almost sounds like a cliche. You're out with a beautiful woman, well, it's my cousin. Well, you know what, if you ever see me out to lunch with a beautiful woman, it's probably one of four women. My wife, my daughter, my cousin Karen, or my sister Claudia. You know, I, from time to time, I get together with my cousin Karen. She'll call me up. She'll say, hey, cuz, you want to grab a bite to eat? And sure. And she's a beautiful woman. Again, too, if somebody sees me with her, they say, oh, who are you with? Saw you with somebody. And there's, again, too, an, you know, there's, it's important. But the other thing, and, and I want to look at this from another area, too, or aspect, or vantage point, and it's this. And I already kind of alluded to it, but the Pharisees. The Pharisees actually would go through the trouble of making sure that what people saw was, again, to an appearance of righteousness. Nobody could say to the Pharisee, well, you know, we saw you walking out of this bar. We saw you riding in a car with a girl. We saw you, you know, whatever. And the interesting thing, though, is that they trusted in their own righteousness. For us as believers, we're not trusting in our own righteousness. We're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I think, too, what's important is, is that what goes on on the outside lines up with something that has already gone on in our hearts on the inside. And Jesus condemns the Pharisees for this external show of righteousness because the problem is still the wickedness that's in their hearts. In Matthew chapter 23, there's a whole bunch of things that he is rebuking them for and also to in Luke chapter 11. I, I like Matthew chapter 23 section just because it brings up a couple of things but Jesus says and this has to do with again to tithing and giving and what people see but not only what they see what I feel like I've done because again I'm doing more I'm going the extra mile more than anybody else he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe. He's going to mention the spices. I mean, they, they didn't just give a tenth of their income or of their increase, is what the scripture says to do. But they would go into their spice cabinets and they would count the little, you know, spices, separate a tenth, put it in a little baggie and bring it down to church and give it to the priest. He says, Woe unto you, uh, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you, you, these ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. 
Verse 24, you blind guides which strain in a gnat, strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. See, the reason why if a gnat flew into their mouth, they would do everything to kind of regurgitate it is because, again, too, according to the law, the Jewish law, you couldn't eat meat unless it had been properly bled. So it's like, you know, insects and bugs and one accidentally goes into your mouth. They're not spitting it up because it's, a, it's gross or uncomfortable. They're spitting it up because it wasn't kosher. It hadn't been bled and they would, you know, bring it back up. Verse 25, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean. This is the one I like. You make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Again, too, it, you know, it's the idea of taking a, a cup or a bowl or a pot and just washing it on the outside, and then it's still dirty, contaminated, filthy on the inside. Sometimes when you put something in the dishwasher. And I, I, maybe I'm kind of a little idiosyncratic this way, but I have a tendency to look at not only the silverware, but plates and things that I'm going to use. Because, again, too, I don't want to... I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get infected. I don't want to, all these things. And so, you know, Jesus is talking about what the Pharisees, their, their priority was what the outside looked like as opposed to the inside. Verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse thou first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like, and this is another one, example of the external, you're like the whited, whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful um, outward, but within are full of dead men's bones and of all unclean, uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, again, too, this kind of harkens to a practice that they had in biblical times. If you touched any type of anything that had been dead or the bones or anything like that, then you became unclean. You couldn't go into God's presence. You couldn't go into the temple to worship for a period of time until you'd been ceremonially cleansed. And what they would do, the practice was, okay, so that someone didn't accidentally touch a gravesite because again to some of the gravesites are just simply caves with a stone covering them or even a pile of stones and so what they would do is they would paint them white so that they would stand out so if you were walking along a field or a road and you saw that you know that whited sepulcher you knew okay if I want to be clean ceremonially clean to be able to worship God I can't touch those dead bones or touch anything that's associated with it and basically, Jesus is saying that's what a Pharisee is like because outwardly it actually looked nice. If you paint it white, it looks nice, but inside it's nothing but death. And Jesus says that's, again, too, it's an appearance of things in the Scripture. Again, too, you could make the argument, and here's the thing I find, is that there's a fine line between legalism and good judgment. We need to exercise good judgment. We need to be aware that whatever we do as believers will either bring glory to God or bring reproach to His name. And I think, at least I hope, that our desire is to bring glory to God. I hope that through our lives, 
were wanting to draw people to Christ or even prompt the question. Or even, too, with the believers, if there's a, a younger believer who lacks in maturity or doesn't have a liberty to do something, that we would avoid that potentiality for stumbling them. And again, too, for me, it's just real simple. If it looks sinful, don't do it. If it looks sinful. It may not even be sinful, but if it looks sinful, then don't do it. There, I said it. Verse 23, next, pa- next verse, and it's, it's really the closing then of the section. He says, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. That word sanctify means to set aside or to make you holy. And it's interesting because he says he's going to sanctify you or make you holy. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you who also will do it. Preserve you wholly. Sanctify you. God is the one that keeps us. And again, too, that's the difference, I think, between the things that the the scribe or the Pharisee would do because, again, they were trusting in their own righteousness. They were, and again, too, I'm sure that many of them had a right desire intent. But the problem is, is that so many times our intent then turns into a, a trusting of what I do. And I think we've got to guard against that. How much I read my Bible, how much I give to God, how much I serve, all these different things. When I begin to trust in my righteous standing with God based on the things that I do, or even feel like somehow I can earn my way, God, you owe me, I've done these things for you, then we neglect to see that there is nothing that we can do to bridge that gap. And that's why Jesus came. He came to bridge that gap. He came to pay the price that we could never pay. And as a result, then, the only thing we can do is be grateful for the work that He begins when we accept Him as Savior. And that is then the work of sanctification that God does. It begins with us acknowledging our sin, confessing Jesus as Lord, and it begins then with a walk in a relationship with God through His Holy Spirit. And as a result then, God is the one that will keep you. I don't have to try to keep myself righteous or somehow keep myself. It's God that is holding you in the palm of His hand. And, 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 and not only does He keep us, you know, He keeps us body, soul, and spirit. That's what Paul is saying. That's my prayer. You know, God is sanctifying you wholly, completely. And I, I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. It's interesting to me, he doesn't say make you blameless in the course of your walk so that when Jesus comes, he sees you blameless. No, what happens is we accept Jesus, we're blameless in the eyes of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Who wouldn't want that? I've shared my own testimony, and even as I was challenged by Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I remember reading that as a non-believer. And again, to coming to the conclusion, even in my own mind, this is like, wow, it sounds like you can get saved. 
by believing in Jesus. And again, too, it's not just something that, again, someone says, well, I believe in Jesus. No, it's not just a belief, but it's a faith or a trust in what Jesus has done. It's an acknowledgement of my sin and my inadequacy to be righteous on my own. But what happens is when you accept Christ, then God, that very instant, looks at you and He sees you blameless. I mean, if I had accepted Christ, and I was in the Marine Corps at the time, and I walked out, and actually the place that I worked was right near the flight line, and if I accidentally walked out on the flight line or into the parking lot, one of these big transport trucks were to knock me dead, and I'd only been saved for five minutes, I'm going to stand before God, and He is going to see me as blameless. Why? Because I'd put my trust in Jesus. See, the, the blamelessness begins when you accept Jesus. And what's important is, is that then not only does it begin, but God wants to continue it to the time that we will either stand before Him or to the time when Jesus returns for His bride, the church. Be preserved blameless. And there are a number of passages, and I love these passages because, again, too, they, they give that same idea that again, what God has begun, He is going to complete until the day that Jesus returns. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul is writing to Timothy about the things that he is suffering because he's a preacher of the gospel. And he says in verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 is very similar. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We begin blameless. That work of sanctification begins, but it never ends. It never ends until the day that we stand before him. And again, then my confidence isn't in what I do. I mean, that's the difference between religion and, again, to, uh, I, I, I try not to use cliches, and I've heard these as a, kind of as a cliche form, but the difference between religion and a relationship with God. A religion is what you think you have to do for God to earn His approval or righteousness or the right to enter heaven. A relationship is what God is wanting to do for you and what He has already done through Jesus Christ. And when you accept Jesus, what He will continue to do in your life until Jesus returns. And as I mentioned, as we've been going through First Thessalonians, Thessalonians, Paul is constantly emphasizing the return of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is coming. Again, knowing that, thinking that, if I knew that Jesus is coming at the end of the week or at the end of the month, or by the end of the year, on a particular Jewish feast, or, or whenever, doesn't that make me want to live a more righteous life, right? And what if Jesus doesn't come when I think He's going to come? And the difference is, is because I love Him, and because I, I don't know when He's going to return. There's, you know, I, I've walked with the Lord for over 30 years now, and there have been different points of time where it's just like you look at what's going on in the world today and you think, Jesus is close, Jesus is coming. And Jesus talks about the signs of His return. And He says, when you begin to see these things, look up because your redemption draws near. And I think at times we look up, we're thinking it's near, but then it doesn't happen when we think. And the difference is, 
is that going to derail my faith? For the last 2,000 years, the church has waited for the return of Jesus. But the, the thing that it does in knowing that Jesus could return in our lifetime or even before I finish this message, the thing that it does is it makes me want to live a righteous life. And it has a purifying effect on the believer. Paul, and, and I'm sorry, John says that in his epistle, that he that has this hope of his return purifies himself. And again, too, it is that work of sanctification, but also, too, it is that consciousness of the return of Christ, living that way, even if he doesn't return, because even if he doesn't return for his bride and we're raptured, as Paul earlier mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, even if that doesn't happen, at the end of my days, when I breathe my last breath and everybody is standing around my bed and weeping for me, Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe I'll just go off a bridge or something. But anyway, <laughs> on that last day, I'll stand before the Lord. In James, it says that our life is but a vapor. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. And we should say, if the Lord wills. Every day is a gift from God. Every day. And are we prepared Again, too, like if we knew Jesus was coming, we'd be pre preparing ourselves, right? But again, what if he doesn't come back? Are you still able to live and love him as fervently and as passionately as if, again, too, you're thinking he's returning tomorrow or at the end of the week? I mean, the Lord does a work, but at the same time, and he does that work of pres preserving us blameless, but also to Jesus' is coming. And here's the thing, and I love verse 24. It says, faithful is he that calls you who will also do it. He's the one that's going to preserve you blameless, and he's the one that is faithful. There's so many passages that deal with the faithfulness of God. And again, too, just that's part of his nature or his character. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. Again, too, it deals with, at times, our lack of faith or our unbelief. God still is faithful. He says that in verse 13. Yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. It doesn't matter what we do. God is the one that's faithful. You know, in, in a sense, the Lord has done everything, and He does everything. All you have to do is yield to that. I mean, a relationship with God can't be any easier. We get an imputed righteousness. We get His Holy Spirit dwelling inside us and empowering us. We have the promise of salvation. And again, too, we have that promise that God is going to complete the work that He is wanting to do in us. Because he's faithful, and again, too, the only thing that messes this up is us in our unwillingness to yield to God or to trust the Lord. 
no, I don't want you to do that. No, Lord, I don't want you to forgive my sins. No, Lord, I don't want to follow you. No, Lord, I don't want to live eternally with you. No, Lord, I've tried walking with you, but now I decide I want to do my own thing. I mean, it's us that turn from God. It's not God that turns from us. And the Lord is faithful. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, it says, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. I love this passage because it demonstrates the difference between man and God. The difference between things that men say and at times they fall short or they are deliberately lying to you. God doesn't lie. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall he not do it? Has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Because the Lord says, God does. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's called you, and he will do it. And Paul closes then by saying in verse 25, and even though he's mentioned prayer earlier in verse 17, and we've seen this previously in the epistle, I like this because, again, too, Paul puts this in right at the end. Pray for us. Pray for us. Do you ask for prayer? You should. And I think, too, it's important to pray. And there's so many things that we can pray for in the day that we're living in. We can pray for the transition that's going to take place in our country as a new president and administration is coming in. I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know what to pray for, but the Lord will guide us, hopefully, and use this as, a, as an opportunity. You know, pray for, the scripture says in Romans chapter 13 that we need to submit to those that God has put in power. But we should also pray for our leaders. Pray for each other. Pray for opportunities as we're approaching the celebration of Christmas that God would give you opportunity to share the real and genuine meaning of Christmas. But also to pray for those that are in ministry, that are serving. Pray for those, again, too. A great thing to do is just simply ask, and I, I'm always blessed, and sometimes it catches me by surprise, and I might not always have an answer right on the tip of my tongue. But I love the fact there are times where people in our fellowship will ask me, what can I pray for you for, Pastor Mike? And, and, all of the, you know, and there are some things that I can share you know, and say, pray for me for these, this, these things or for our fellowship for these things. And there are some things that I just can't share even though I want to, but I can't share just because, again, too, there are things that as a pastor I have to either deal with or situations that I'm aware with of and that I can't share with everybody, but they still burden my heart and I want prayer for them. I want God to give me wisdom or give me guidance or I want God to, to be able to equip me to be able to withstand whatever things that are going on. And Paul just simply said, he doesn't even specifically say, well, pray for us for this. He just says, pray for us. And I think too, maybe it's a great way to to end a conversation by saying, just pray for me. And, and again, if I'm not going through a trial, I remember Damien Kyle once saying this when he talked about trials and temptations. He says, you're either in the midst of one or you're approaching one or you're leaving one. 
And so the, the need, the importance for prayer. And in verse 26, he says, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I'm going to have the ushers hand out the elements for communion. Hang on to them. We will take them together. Communion is something that we celebrate as believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're invited to celebrate communion with us. But it's also important because the scripture tells us to examine our hearts. If there's something that needs to be confessed or an area of sin that, that you know that, again, too, the Lord wouldn't be pleased with, then this is a great chance for, in a sense, to, to, to hit the reset button in your relationship with God by confessing sin and by partaking of communion. If you're not a believer and you'd like to accept Jesus as your Savior, then you can do that before partaking of communion. And the thing I'd say is just simply ask Him to come into your heart. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins and ask Him to be Lord of your life. So before we take communion, again, if you're a non-believer, then pray that prayer to the Lord personally and He promises to come in. So 